this past week, as most of you are probably aware of, was, was a very significant week, uh, I think especially as of late, in uh, our culture, in our nation. There were a number of Supreme Court decisions that came down, and it's been the topics that have been dominating the news and talk shows and newspapers recently. And unless you've been under a rock, you recognize that there are a number of debates that are raging in our culture right now. And one of the realities of this public discourse that's currently going on is that both sides um, are convinced that the other side is not only wrong, but evil. And so the talk and the conversation is characterized by a great deal of condemnation a great deal of of hatred even and vilifying the opponent, a great deal of judging. One of the issues that came down last week was about gay marriage. This topic of gay marriage is one of the central topics that is going on in our culture right now. There are, of course, two sides to this, and each side is guilty both of judging the other and of hating and condemning the other. We see it's almost everywhere that we look now. And it reminded me this week of a story that I heard a number of months ago that was quite shocking, especially whenever you consider the the nature of the public debate. It was a story about Chick-fil-A and the president of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy. And now this story was actually written as an editorial in the Huffington Post, and it was written by uh, a gay man who is actually an activist in the gay rights movement, the founder of one of the largest gay rights organizations in the nation. And it actually happened to be the man who was leading the boycotts against Chick-fil-A restaurants. You probably remember this. It was a number of months ago, a nationwide boycott that was a stir-up and all over the place from both sides uh, protesting the other side. And, and it, was, it was characterized by a lot of heat and a lot of anger. But this article was written by this gay rights leader, and it was absolutely shocking to hear the story that he was sharing. Now, the name of this editorial was Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy. Now, this guy was sharing some things that were not going to be popular with his base and with his followers, but he had been changed by an encounter with Dan Cathy. Now, mind you, this is one of the front-leading leaders of this whole boycott against Chick-fil-A. And at the very height of the controversy, he got a phone call from Dan Cathy. And he shares in this article that as he was going to take this phone call, he was seized with fear. He was worried. He thought, surely this guy's going to tear me to pieces. Surely this guy's going to tell me about how his team of lawyers are coming after me, about how, how, how much he hates me. He was absolutely shocked whenever he realized Dan Cathy had called him to get to know him, to befriend him, to ask him, can you tell me what it's like to be you? Can you tell me what my organization has done that has hurt you, that has made you feel judged? I want to learn from you. And so what began with one phone call turned into an actual friendship, 
Many phone calls, many personal meetings. Dan Cathy had him into his home with his family. And it all came to a culmination at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. You know, one of the most popular college football bowls. January's Day. This gay rights activist was Dan Cathy's featured guest on the sidelines of the Chick-fil-A Bowl. They had become friends. And he shares throughout this article about how the way that Dan Cathy had approached him, had initiated, had come with a posture of humility and love, never once saying, I'm going to change my views, never once saying, I don't actually believe what I believe, but rather doing it in a way that says, I love you and respect you even as I disagree with you. It's remarkable to consider, especially in the nature of our culture today. It's an absolutely amazing kind of story. And I think it's a picture of the ideal of what the church ought to be like in our response to the culture, in our response to the world. It is an ideal of what exactly Jesus is calling us to in this passage. As he says, don't judge. I mean, Dan Cathy so wonderfully lived out the words of Jesus here. But if we're honest as the church, we will have to admit that this is somewhat rare, would you say? It's somewhat rare as a response from us to the world and to the culture and to those that disagree with us. In fact, if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, which is exactly what Dan Cathy did, he went to this guy and said, can you tell me what it's like to be you? If we were to put ourselves in their shoes, we would begin to notice, what does it feel like to feel judged? And begin to experience what it might be like to be them. That is rarely our response. And not only our response to the world... It's far too little our response in our relationships with one another. If we're honest, so often we condemn one another, separate from one another, and look down upon one another, even in the church. But in our passage, Jesus calls us to be a different kind of community, to be a loving, compassionate, accepting kind of community that does care what people become but it's fully accepting and fully loving. And what we're seeing in our passage is that the only way for us to be this kind of people is as we more deeply embrace the implications of the gospel for us as his people. So in our passage, we'll see, we'll see first the dangers that Jesus shows us of being judgmental. Next, we'll see on the other side of the coin, so to speak, the dangers of overlooking truth. And then finally, we'll talk about how does this apply to us And how does the gospel speak to it? That's where we're going in our passage. So in the first few verses of our passage, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gets right to the chase here. He says, verse 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean by to judge? Now, he doesn't mean to make judgments in the sense of being discerning, For Scripture talks about that a great deal, that we are to discern things, to make judgments about different things. But what he is talking about is about being judgmental. That is, having a critical, fault-finding attitude towards other people. 
It's looking down upon other people. It's having a sense of superiority to other people. It's looking upon other people and their faults as if you are above them. Whenever we judge others, that's exactly what happens. We become elevated. We become in the position of authority. We become in a position where we can look down and notice how someone is unlike us. One of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out about this experience of judging is that whenever you do it, two things happen. One is you exclude this person from the community. You begin to distance yourself from another person. And if you've ever experienced being judged, you know how deeply painful it is. It's a shaming experience. It is that experience of feeling, I don't belong. I am cast out, that deep sense of shame that Scripture talks so very much about. So it distances us from them, and the second thing that it does is it blinds us to the evil that is within us. Because by the very nature of judging, of looking down, you're blinded to your own sin. It is an attitude of heart that crushes other people. One of the shocking things about the Sermon on the Mount is that most of what Jesus speaks to us about is not just actions, but attitudes of heart. And if we were to receive all that Jesus and God says throughout the Scriptures about how dangerous the sins of the heart can be, we would be shattered as we consider our own lives. Jesus is speaking most harshly here against an attitude that would look down upon other people and that would crush them. Another reality about judging is that zeal tends to drive it. The more religious you are, the more easily you're blinded to your own need. The more harshly you will look down and judge other people. Jesus, right here in our passage, points out the nature of how it blinds you to yourself. He gives us a little, a little illustration, a little image. It's really funny if you think about it. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? See the picture that he's giving you here? Okay, somebody's got a little speck in their eye, and now you have a 10-foot-long two-before sticking out of your eye socket. That's the picture here, a plank, a log. He says... How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So just picture that for a minute. I've got a two-before sticking out of my eye socket, and I come to someone who has a little speck in their eye, and I say, let me help you with that. I notice you got something wrong here. Might be bothering your vision a little bit. Can I help you? And the whole time your log's just popping them in the head, right? <laughs> Jesus says that's what it's like. That's the insane irony of judging someone else. It's that you have the plank. See what Jesus is saying here? Is to be self-righteous, to look down upon someone else, to be prideful in your heart towards another person is a plank where whatever they have is more like a speck. That is hard to get into your heart, to really believe that he means that. Because you see those sins that are so easily noticed that we turn our nose up at. Man, those seem like the things that really matter. But you know, 
little self-righteousness, a little pride. Is that that big of a deal? Jesus says, it's a plank sticking out of your head. It's absolutely shocking. So because it's blinding to us, because we so easily don't notice it, we ought to assume there's probably areas in my life in which I do this. So what are the areas? What are the areas that this would come out? Well, usually it comes out in our words. You know, in the ways that we would become critical, the ways that we would use our words to cut others down, or the ways that we would use our words to gossip and talk about someone else. What are we doing whenever we're gossiping? We're spreading a report about someone else's sins. We're talking about their speck. And I'm really worried about such and such. They got a speck in their eye. You know, anytime, uh, oftentimes that pops up in prayer requests, right? Oh, we, need to, we need to pray for such and such. Bless their heart, which is actually a lead-in to gossip. Have you heard that phrase, bless their heart? A southerner is about to gossip. <laughs> bless their heart. I've noticed this thing in their life, and they don't see it, and I need to help them with it. It so subtly comes out, not always even in our words, but the attitudes of our hearts. In the ways that we notice things about other people and they just drive us up the wall. And nothing bothers a self-righteous person more than the sin of other people. Just gets under your skin. Just drives you a little crazy. How can they not see this? How can they be so blind to it? It comes out in things like, Oh, can you believe them? They feed their children non-organic food. I mean, what kind of mother are they? They're going to kill their children. There's probably pesticides in that stuff. Can you believe it? And I even saw them drink a Coke one time. It's awful kind of stuff. We need to help them. We need to help them understand the ways of organic food. We're in the ways that we might look at someone and say, I cannot believe the way in which they use their money. They run their business. I cannot believe they actually ascribe to that kind of theology. Can you believe it? So inferior to our way. You see, it's so subtle. See, we think we're helping somebody. Let me give you some advice. That's what it is. It's good advice that you just got to share. But Jesus is saying at the root of it, it's a judgmentalism. It's a criticalness. It's a superiority. It's a looking down upon another person as if you were immune to the same kind of need. So where does it come from here? Where does this judgmentalism come from? I think we see it right here in our passage. Do you notice what Jesus says right there in verses 1 and 2? He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's Jesus' clever way of turning your judging back on yourself. You see, at the root of judging is a fundamental forgetting of your own need of grace. That's what's at the root of it. Whenever you begin to sit in judgment on another person, you have moved out of the realm of your awareness of your own need of grace. Just fundamentally happening. And Jesus takes you back to see it and says, Okay, would you like to be judged by God? Would you like God to search you in the way that you're searching other people? How would you like him to look upon you? How would that report be? What would he see? 
You see, it's Jesus' way of saying, put yourself in their shoes, and this time the one looking in on you is the one who sees all the way to your soul. If you feel good about that, judge away. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus was doing in that scene in the Gospels where the woman has been caught in adultery and a crowd is circled around her, stones in hand, fury and rage ready to stone her. Oh, you can imagine what they were thinking, right? There is no place for this among God's people. We cannot simply let this go and turn a blind eye. We've got to deal with this. And if we don't, it's liable to spread. She has brought this kind of sin into our community. And we've got to fix it. You can imagine the kind of things they were saying and thinking. And Jesus comes up and almost in the same way speaks into that and says, You who are without sin, cast away. Jesus said, is there anybody here that's different than her? Is there anyone here that is not a sinner, that is not in need of God's grace? If it's true, let her rip. Because Jesus was showing their self-righteousness, their condemnation was worse. And what began to happen? Stones started dropping. People started filing away. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. They have not condemned you, neither do I. So at the very core of condemning is a fundamental forgetting of my own need of grace. But there's another side of that same coin. It's not only a forgetting of my need of grace, it's also a forgetting of my acceptance in Christ. You know, this is an ironic thing to see. But the people that are the most loud that are the most convinced, that are the most angry and condemning, are the most insecure. It doesn't seem that way. It seems like they're more convinced than anybody else. But their condemnation betrays a deep insecurity where they don't know that they're accepted. They're trying to justify themselves. That's why you judge. It's a way of elevating yourself. It's a way of, out of a deep insecurity of, am I okay? Am I on the right side? Am I acceptable? Well, judging is a way to make that sure. Well, I'm better than them. If they're on the outside, I'm on the inside. It's a way of justifying ourselves. And at the root of it is a fundamental forgetting of our acceptance, our full acceptance in Christ. So really, they're two sides of the same coin, and they fuel condemnation and judging. And it so often characterizes Christ's church. Well, these words of Jesus, do not judge, are actually a popular phrase in our culture today. I mean, you could, in much of the public discourse, come out and say, you know what, Jesus said do not judge, and a lot of people are going to say, amen, you're right, that's great. But does Jesus by that mean that you're simply to never speak of truth, to never disagree, to never say, I don't think that's right? Is that what he means by that? Because that's the the culture's version of love is tolerance. It means you live and let live. It means you don't say anything about how I live. I don't say anything about how you live. That's not love. It's a counterfeit love. Because love cares what another becomes. Is Jesus advocating that? Well, of course not. 
I mean, even in the passage that we're looking at, Jesus talks about how to make right judgments. He talks about the, the importance of discerning things. In verse 6, in verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, we won't get into all that that means. But he's essentially saying you've got to be discerning. To those who are hostile in their response to the gospel or towards your, your moving towards them, sharing something towards them, you've got to be able to discern. Are they going to hear it or are they going to respond absolutely angrily? You've got to make a discernment. Later in the passage, Jesus talks about the importance for a number of verses of recognizing false teachers. The implication there is that there are false teachers and that we need to know who they are. So in many places, Jesus calls us to make discernments. He's not talking about making judgments. He's talking about being judgmental. And even in verse 5, did you see this? In verse 5, at the end of his little illustration here, he says this, You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to, move, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, the point of the whole illustration is to know how to help your brother with the speck. Jesus is not saying, if you see a speck, if you see something that someone else does not see, don't worry about it. Just let them deal with it. Just don't ever bring it up. That's not what he's saying. Because Jesus is making an assumption about us. Is that the things that we most need to hear and see about ourselves, we're blind to in ourselves. That's why He calls us to be a kind of community that speaks truth to one another in love. We need people in our life that will see things about us, patterns, sins, things that we are blind to, that they can help us with them. Jesus says the speck matters. He's just telling us how, how to go about it. He's not saying, don't worry about that. Just let it go. Now, sometimes, as Paul says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Jesus is not saying you go around nitpicking everything. Oftentimes, love says, I'm just going to let it go. We're talking about things that really impact people's lives that they are blind to. And it matters. Now, this image, this illustration really hits home for me. Because I got a speck... It's more like, it was a little bit bigger than a speck, stuck in my eye one time. I've told you a number of stories about my adventure in remodeling my condo, which was just ridiculous. I don't know what I was thinking in doing that. Um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a construction worker. I don't know what I'm doing. But I, I thought, yes, of course I can remodel things because I've watched HGTV. So I start remodeling my condo. And one day, I had a skill saw, and I was cutting a piece of paneling. And I had no safety goggles or anything. If you know anything about cutting paneling, it just splinters. It just goes all over the place. And so I'm cutting it along, and all of a sudden, I feel something hit me in the eye. And I kind of stopped, and it wasn't really painful at the beginning. I thought, I don't know. I, I think something came into my eye, and I went into the mirror. And I was looking in the mirror, and I couldn't see it. I couldn't see anything. I thought, well, maybe I'm all right. Was the day went on and the next day arrived, the pain began to buckle my knees. See, what began to happen is this little piece of wood that had stuck in my eye that was very small, my eye began to push it out. 
And it was pushing it out. My eyelid was going over it like that. And it was just jamming it in the eye. And it was killing me. I was desperate for anybody to help me with this speck in my eye. And so, you know, I went to the most helpful places we all know. I went to the ER. And there's like 10 doctors looking in my eye and saying, there's nothing in here. I said, I don't know what's going on, but something is in my eye. And so they sent me home and gave me some Tylenol or something. Well, the next day, the pain was so bad, I could not bear it. And so I went to something that knew what, I went to somebody that knew what to do. I went to an eye doctor, somebody that was trained, somebody that they had the right kind of equipment, and they knew how to see it and how to go in there and help me. And this guy comes in with a special instrument, very, very carefully. I mean, can you imagine how vulnerable you feel? Someone coming in to get somebody, something out of your eye. I was so scared. I was so nervous. I felt so vulnerable because you can do a lot of damage here. But he came in and he took that speck out of my eye and I was indebted. I mean, I would have given my firstborn son to this guy. I was, I was so grateful because it was immediate relief in my life. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that the speck really does matter. But he's more speaking to how. How do you come in? Because it's very delicate. And people are very vulnerable. And so whenever you come in to help somebody with what they cannot see in their life, you've got to be very, very careful. But you, they need you. We need one another to help us with the things that we can't see because they impact our life. And how does Jesus say here that we're to do it? Again, verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says, here's how you do it. You begin with repentance. Before you ever go to them, before you ever start working on that speck, You get before God and you say, how do I do the same thing? How am I just like this? How have I done the same thing in my life? How am I currently doing the same thing in my life? If I've never done this, if I've never struggled with this, there are countless things that I have struggled with that are essentially at their root no different. You repent. And you go before God and you lower yourself and say, I need your grace ever bit as much as this person does. You begin with repentance. And then you go to your brother. And you say, I see something. I want to help you with it. But listen, I'm right there with you. I need grace just like you do and even more. Let's walk through this together. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to love one another deeply enough to speak up, to speak truth. And now this is risky. This is very risky. And in fact, who is humble enough to receive things like this? But Jesus is calling us to it. And He even says, this is how we grow as we speak the truth in love to one another. But how we do it is by beginning with repentance. Coming in saying, I need grace more than you do. So Jesus in our passage is showing us there's really a twofold danger here. One is that 
we would be experts at the sin of other people, that we would condemn, that we would look down upon other people, that so quickly we become self-righteous and look down upon other people. There's another danger, just overlooking it. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Live and let live. Jesus says, that's not love at all. He's calling us to a balance here. Now, for you in your life, which tends to characterize you more? Are you one that tends to be the critical fault finder? You know, you're always noticing what's not right about it. You know, it's never perfect enough. You're always noticing flaws in your spouse or your children or in your coworkers. You know, it just kind of eats you up. You know, your words get away from you before you can get a hold of them. You know, you, without even meaning to, your words come out and hurt somebody else by your judgment, by your critical attitude. Is that your experience? Or are you more like the other person? You just kind of keep to yourself and say, I'm not going to bother with that. They'll be okay just not worth it, it's too risky, it's too dangerous, just overlook it. Which tends to characterize you? I think if we're probably honest, we probably would find both in our life in all kinds of different areas. It's an amazing kind of balance to find there that we would be completely accepting and loving in every way, but at the same time care what one another becomes so much that we would actually speak up. How do we find that as a community? How do we actually become that? Well, it's only by embracing the fullness of the gospel. You see, the gospel tells us a number of things. The first thing that it tells us is that our need is far greater than we can ever imagine. You see, the gospel shows us that our need is so great and so outrageous that only the death of the perfect son can reconcile us to God. All of our goodness, all of our accomplishments, all of the ways that we've gotten our act together, they matter zero. Our need is so great and we're all in the same boat. Only the death of the perfect son will reconcile us to God. It shows us our need. But it also shows us our inconceivable acceptance through Christ. It shows us that I am one who deserves to be judged. If God broke out His magnifying glass on me, He would see every kind of imperfection you could possibly imagine. But His wrath and His judgment fell not on me, nor will it ever. It fell on His perfect Son. He took my place. On the cross, all of my judgment fell upon Him. And I am pardoned forever. Never will we be condemned by holy God. Do you get that? Is it just in your head? Is it just something that you say that you believe? Or does it penetrate your heart in such a way that it moves you to grateful joy? Is it real for you? In the face of all of your accusations, in the face of all of your insecurities, is it true for you? If you believe it, let me tell you, you will not condemn. You can't. It's impossible. When you are believing the truth of what Christ has accomplished fully on your behalf, you cannot judge. It cuts it out at the roots. There's another thing that the gospel shows us. God not only has loved us so deeply to pardon our sins, it is His intention to actually remove them, to actually change us. He cares what we become. 
And it is through the power of the cross and the perfect life of Christ that He will actually make us perfect. We're in that process now. He is at work in our lives, transforming us. He did not just leave us and overlook the reality of our life. He did not just say, let me forgive you and now you're good. His love is so fierce and so strong that He will never stop until we become what we were created to be. Sometimes we wish He would love us less. God, just leave me alone. Just let me be. His love is far too wonderful for that. When those realities hit home for you, you cannot just overlook the needs that one another have. You cannot just turn a blind eye whenever you see something in your brother. If you love them, if you care what they become, you will risk, you will do the hard work. You will repent and move towards them in love. I want to close with a a story, an illustration from my own personal life where I really experienced this through another person and it changed me. Some of you know my story. I was, came to know Christ in college. Um, I was in a fraternity at a large public university and living totally out of fellowship with the Lord and seeking life and so many different things and living a wild lifestyle and Someone pursued me and began to disciple me, and I began to understand the grace of Christ in its fullness, and it began to change my life. I got involved with this campus ministry, began to have a ministry in my fraternity house, saw some of my wild fraternity brothers come to know the Lord. I loved being able to minister, especially to those who were the wildest and most on the fringe. And then whenever I got ready to graduate, years later, my campus director and the guy that had discipled me came to me and said, why don't you think about interning with our campus ministry? And I thought, you know, I'm ready to go out and begin my career. I don't think this is for me. And that season, as I'm really wrestling and struggling with what I'm going to do, I really began to struggle spiritually. You know what? I began to fall into some of my old patterns of struggle, some of those sins that I'd struggled with as a very young believer. You know my response to that? I was ashamed. I I wanted to hide from the Lord. I wanted to hide from those people in my life. I wanted to run. But God wouldn't, He would not leave me alone. He would not leave me alone until I applied. So I said, okay, I'll go through the application process, but I know they're going to reject me. Whenever they see what I've been struggling with lately, I'm done for. So let's just get it over with. So I applied, hoping that they would just say, you're done. What are you thinking? But they didn't. The guy that was overseeing the application said, let's get together. And we sat down, and he began to draw out what I was struggling with in my life and shower me with grace. And he said, here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to go and tell your director. I think you need to tell him. I said, anything but that. Just reject me. Just do anything. I'd rather die. Not because he was judgmental or anything but gracious. I knew he was, but I was ashamed, deeply ashamed, but I did it. God wouldn't leave me alone. We got together, and I still remember the restaurant. I remember the table that we were sitting at whenever I was sitting across from him, and I told him what I was struggling with, and I was so ashamed. Do you know what his response was? 
He melted before me with grace. His heart was broken for me. The grace that He lavished upon me in that moment changed my life forever. And He said, you need to be with us. You don't need to be a part of us. You need to be with us so that you can heal and so that you can grow. And in that moment, with that response, a response that was full of compassion and grace, but at the same time, a care about what I would become, I encountered Jesus right there. He was Jesus for me, the embodiment of Him for me, and it changed me. See, what Jesus is calling each of us to is in all of our relationships to embody Jesus in this kind of way with deep compassion that will accept someone no matter what is true about their life, but that cares deeply about who they will become. That cares deeply that they be redeemed and transformed into the image of Christ. Can you imagine what God might do through you in just any kind of relationship, in any kind of setting, as we embody that kind of love? Imagine as a community of people, as the church. Imagine in our world if the church became characterized by these two dual realities that come together in no other place. If we were so accepting and compassionate, it defied logic. But at the same time, spoke truth because we cared. Can you imagine? May it be for His glory alone. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your grace, Your love, Your mercy that will never end. We are addicted to doubting it. It's in our core to move from it. Would you drive it more deeply into our soul so that we believe in it, so that we become free by it, so that we live lives of joy and compassion. And may we be a community that speaks the truth in love, that that deeply cares about what one another become and and hope for one another to, to be changed and transformed. Do that in us so that you would be embodied in this world and so that your glory would fill the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.